All right, if you could turn to page four in your bulletins. The preaching text uh, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, I will read uh, for you starting in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. This is the Word of God. So, uh, this is a very dense passage, as you can tell. And uh, it can be difficult to interpret. And we'll get into that. You know, we're going to really wade into the weeds of exegesis shortly. Uh, But before we get to that... Uh, we ought not to miss the forest for the trees. We ought not to get so bogged down in the details of this passage that we miss the point. What is the point? What is the take-home message today? Paul is affirming the goodness and the value of the single life. That's the point. Paul is affirming the goodness and the value of the single life, and that was revolutionary. Because in the ancient world, it was unthinkable to be unmarried. Your entire purpose in life, your mission in life, the reason for your existence was to get married, have children, they would carry on your name, they would take care of you in your old age, right? And your very identity was tied to your family. And into that world and into that culture, uh, Christianity says, both marriage 
and singleness are valid. Right? That it is good to be single. And that, you know, Christianity is the only religion that has ever said that. It is the only worldview that affirms both marriage and singleness. And it was revolutionary then, and it is still revolutionary today. You know, modern culture, we think it's so advanced, you know, and it's so beyond it all. And on the surface, uh, it does seem like uh, it's friendly to singles, right? Uh, There was a movie a while back uh, called Bridget Jones's Diary. And uh, it's the story of Bridget Jones, played by uh, um, Renee Zellweger. And uh, she's like this, you know, uh, 30-something-year-old single woman living in London, and she has very modern sensibilities, you know? And the movie begins with her having to go back home um, to the countryside where her parents live, and they're having this Christmas party, right? And uh, this Christmas party, you know, all her parents' friends are there, right, this older generation. And they are very presumptuous and very rude, you know, because she's the only single person at the party. And they kind of have this very, the gall to, to go to her and say, uh, so you're not married yet, eh? And, and so how is your love life? You know, and there's this kind of funny scene where they're all kind of gathered around there and they're, they're trying to analyze what's her problem, you know? Maybe it's because she has too frumpy clothing or maybe it's because she's too career-minded, you know? And, you know, the whole point, what is the point of that scene? The point is to, is to kind of mock the older generation, right? Look how short-sighted and prejudiced they are. Look how they don't get what, it, what it's like to be this urban single. But you know what's really funny? While it's poking fun at traditional mores, right, the movie still fundamentally accepts the basic premise, which is that unless you have somebody special, you're nobody. There's this, I think, illuminating scene where uh, Bridget Jones goes back to London, right? And it's the new year, and she kind of gets drunk, and, you know, it's it's, it's kind of like this disastrous night. And um, she realizes her life is going nowhere, you know, that she's on the wrong track. And so she does what, like, a lot of adults do. She she writes down these New Year's resolutions, right? Because she, you know, she's committed to getting her life back on the right track. And I want to read to you one of her New Year's resolutions, which um, is kind of in tongue-in-cheek, but I think it's really perceptive, okay? This is what she says. She says, I will not sulk about having no boyfriend, but develop inner poise and authority and sense of self as woman of substance, complete without boyfriend, as best way to obtain boyfriend. (laughs) And there it is, right? In the end, it's still about finding someone special. And that's the point, right? In the end, she, she finds um, her man, who you know, is Colin Firth, right? And, and the only difference is maybe the tactics are different. Or think about Sex in the City, right? There's a show, you know, a huge popular HBO hit show about four single women living in Manhattan. And it's kind of the show that kind of glorifies this glamorous life of being single, you know, in New York City. And it's this, this celebration of the fact that these women don't need men to be complete. But do you know what's so deeply ironic about the show? Is at the very end, at the end of season six, the grand finale, all four women are coupled up, right? Two of them are in, are in, in a marriage. Two of them are in a long-term relationship. You know Why? Because our culture cannot conceive of a happy story 
unless someone is in a romantic relationship in the end. And I think, unfortunately, it's the same in the church. You know, in our church culture, we have this kind of sense that uh, marriage is a higher state of being. And singleness is a kind of deficiency, a problem to be solved rather than something legitimate in its own right. And don't we, you know, when we meet someone who is single relatively late in life, don't we sort of uh, ask ourselves, what's wrong with them? And we jump to conclusions and we say, well, maybe that person is too ugly to find a mate. Or maybe that person is too poor. And we basically come to the conclusion that it is a failure on their part. But the Bible says it is good to be married and it is good to be single. Okay, you need to hear this. The Bible says it is good to be single, that you are in no way incomplete if you are unmarried. You know why we know that? Because the Apostle Paul was single. And Jesus was single. That's a serious point. Jesus was single. Have you, you know, considered that? Because Jesus shows us what it means to be truly human. He was in no way incomplete, and yet he was never married. Jesus shows us what it is to be a fully realized human and fulfilled person. You see, it is very bad theology. Even if, it may, if, even if you say it in a well-intentioned way, it is very bad theology to say to someone, you need to be married or you will never be happy or you will never be complete. Wrong. Wrong, because Jesus shows us and the Apostle Paul shows us right, that there is more to human existence than marriage. That you can be fully realized uh, contented person and be a celibate single. And you know, you know why? Because what makes us complete and fulfilled is not marriage. It's not romance. It's not sex. It's Christ. That is our fundamental identity, not our marital status. I remember going to a, a wedding of a, a friend of mine and after the ceremony, he said to me, kind of in passing, he said, you know, now that I'm finally married, you know, he had been waiting a long time. He said, now that I'm finally married, now I know I'm okay. Now I know things are going to be okay. Let me say something to the singles in the room. If you are not content with Jesus alone today, you will never be content with anything or anyone tomorrow. If you cannot rest in Jesus alone today, then don't fool yourself that you will find that rest in someone else's arms tomorrow. Because you know what the loneliest moment in life is? The loneliest moment in life is when you put all of your hope into finding someone to fill that void. And you strive and you work and you search and then you finally think you found that person and they just don't do it for you. You see, only God can satisfy our deepest longings. Only God can quench our soul's thirst for meaning and significance. And this is why Christianity affirms the celibate single life. Because singleness is a proclamation of the all-sufficiency and all-satisfying glory of knowing God, that God alone is enough. And I know that's hard for us to believe because 
all of our lives we're told otherwise, right? Um, our parents and our friends and our culture and movies constantly bombard us. You cannot be happy unless you find someone special. And so let me press the case further, okay? Jesus in Matthew 22, and I put the salient verse there in the bulletin. Jesus in Matthew 22 tells us that in heaven there is no marriage. What happened was the uh, religious leaders came to Jesus, and as usual, they're trying to trap him. And so they ask him a question about marriage and the resurrection. And Jesus says in response, don't you see, there is no such thing as marriage in the resurrection. And that might be hard uh, for some of you to believe, but what Jesus is telling us is that as good and as beautiful as marriage is, it is temporary. Its purpose is temporary. Marriage is not forever, but it is a provision for this life only. And what that tells us in the clearest language possible is that singleness is not some sort of lower state of being. How could it be if there is no marriage in heaven? but that Christianity affirms the value and the beauty and the goodness of singleness. And so if we're going to believe the Bible, if we're going to believe Jesus, we need to take that to heart. We need to honor singleness as a valid thing, as something beautiful and good and not something to be pitied, not some kind of tragedy, you know. And if there's one thing you're going to remember from the sermon today, uh, and I know, I'm a realist, right? Not every detail of the sermon will be remembered, even five minutes after it's ended. Um, if there's one thing you're going to remember, let it be this. That singleness is pleasing to God, and it is good. It is something good. All right, so that leads me to my next point, which is, why singleness? You know, If it's not some sort of curse... <laughs> then what is its purpose? What value does it have? What is its use? And here we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And 1 Corinthians 7 um, is a passage that really riles people up. It gets people upset because they think that Paul is expressing his preference for singleness in moral categories, right? And so they think that Paul is basically saying, you know, marriage is okay, but if you really love God, you'd be single, you know? Um, And so they think that Paul is denigrating marriage. But this is what I would say, and I've said this before, you cannot read Paul in isolation. Um, The same Paul that wrote our passage, 1 Corinthians 7, also wrote Ephesians 5. And we've been, you know, soaking in Ephesians 5 now for like two months, right? And so you know, it is the single greatest chapter on the beauty and the glory of marriage ever written. Same Paul who wrote both of these passages, okay? And so Paul is affirming marriage, and that's why at the end of verse 36, he says, if someone wants to marry, it's fine. It's it's good. Go ahead. It is no sin. And I know even there, it it almost sounds like Paul is making a concession, right? Like he's saying, well, if you really want to get married, don't feel too guilty about it. Um, But that's not... That's understanding Paul completely in the wrong way. When he says, it is no sin, he's saying, I'm not talking about right and wrong. I'm not talking about um, righteousness and, and sin, but I'm saying that both are good, both are pleasing to God. So then what is Paul talking about? Well, Paul is talking about marriage and singleness in terms of practical value. 
okay, in terms of its practicalness, all right? So he's making the case for singleness, okay, in terms of its practicality in the kingdom, all right? So are you ready? Here are his two arguments, all right? And, and this is, you know, I've warned you, this is where we're going to really get into the exegesis of the passage, all right? So, you know, put on your thinking caps, all right? <laughs> you know, get ready, follow along. All right, so the first reason. So he gives two reasons. We're going to go one at a time. First reason he gives for singleness, verse 26, he says, the present distress. The present distress. What is Paul talking about? Well, at the time that he wrote this, there was a severe famine in the Roman Empire. And so is that it? Is Paul saying, because of the trauma of the famine, it is good to be single? I don't think so. And the reason why I say it is all you have to do is read on. In verse 29, he says, what I mean is this. The appointed time has grown very short. And then in verse 31, there at the very end, he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. What is Paul talking about? He is talking about the end of history and Christ's second coming. When the world as it is broken and evil will be undone and and a new world and a new creation will be ushered in. And so the argument that Paul is making is he's saying that in light of the end, it is good to be single. Now some of you are saying, wait a minute, didn't Paul get that wrong? Because here we are, 2,000 years later, and Christ hasn't returned. That's not the argument Paul is making. He's not talking about the shortness of time. And here I think we need to really read um, the passage carefully in its context, okay? So I think it's valuable for us. Let's, let, me read, let me take you along again, starting in verse 29. He says, this is what I mean. Let me explain to you what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. And then he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. You see, is Paul saying, Jesus will return in a few short years. And so drop everything. Don't buy anything. Quit your jobs. Go to the hills and wait for Jesus. No, you know, only crazy cults do that. <laughs> and we know that's not what Paul is saying. It's because the early Christians didn't do that. The, the early church was radically involved in their communities. You know, just to give you one example, I love this example. All the early historians make note of this, that there was a series of devastating plagues uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And every time a plague would enter a city what would happen is the rich would get up and flee, and they would flee to, to the countryside because the Romans had no idea how to cure these diseases, but they at least knew that proximity killed you, that, that if you were close to the sick, you would, you, you would catch the disease. And understand that the mortality rate was 25%. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine in a few short months, one in four of your friends would die? And all the historians make note of this, you know, not just Christian historians, but non-Christian people who are hostile to the Christian faith said this, that the Christians stayed in the cities. They stayed to care for the poor and to tend to the sick, and because of that, they dropped like flies. Untold thousands of Christians died in every plague, but because of their mercy and compassion, 
Christianity was so attractive that tons and tons of people converted into the church and the church grew by leaps and bounds. This is historical fact. And so Paul is not saying, you know, the end is near, run for your lives. Okay? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the reality that Jesus is coming back to usher in the fullness of his kingdom for the transformation of this world means right, that this world as we know it is not permanent. That this world uh, in its present form will not last forever. And so therefore, don't live like it is. Don't just carry on and, and buy and sell and work as if this world is all there is, but don't you see there is a greater reality, there is a new world dawning, if only you have eyes to see. One of my favorite movies is, uh, and I've shared this example, I think, uh, is The Truman Show. And uh, it's such a brilliant, you know, deeply philosophical movie. Uh, it's the story of Truman Burbank, played by uh, Jim Carrey. And, uh, it's, and he doesn't know it, but Truman is the star of a reality show. And the reason why he doesn't know it is because he was born into the show. The show began as when he was a little baby. And so he lives on this kind of island community, which in reality is this giant domed TV studio. And everything in his life is this, his whole reality is constructed, right? Everything is an artifice. You know, all his relationships, you know, his parents, even his best friend, even his wife are paid actors and actresses, right? So everything is false. Everything is fake. And the way the show producers keep him on this island is that they've instilled these phobias in him as a little kid. You know, he's deathly afraid of flying. He's, he's scared to death of the water. And so he, he, they've managed to keep him on this island, to, you know, giving him this kind of scripted life so he could be content, and you know, everything is just so perfect, he has a nice job, nice home, you know, nice community, and he stays on this island. But if you've seen the movie, you know that one day, these little flaws appear, right? These little inconsistencies, uh, kind of glitches in the matrix, right? That, that, that cannot be explained away, and there's this one funny scene where, he, where he's kind of wandering around the city, and he accidentally walks into the break room where all the extra actors are kind of relaxing, you know? and, you know, drinking coffee and unwinding. And, they, and everyone frantically kind of covers it up and tries to pretend like it's no big deal. But it begins to gnaw at him because it's something that he's always suspected, which is that the world as it is, there's something wrong. There's something not right about it. And so he decides he's driven by this insatiable desire to discover the truth, no matter what the cost. And so he gets on a sailboat. And remember, he's scared to death of the water, right? He gets on the sailboat, and he launches off, and he's, and, he's, and he's committed to getting off this island, right? And the show producers do everything they can to kind of keep him on the island. They throw storms and wind, but he prevails, and he's sailing in his face of steel to, to escape until suddenly the sailboat crashes, and it actually punctures a hole in the wall of the TV studio, which he realizes is like this painted landscape. And it's like this incredible moment of epiphany and revelation as he realizes that everything he's ever known is false. And he gets out of the sailboat and he's sort of feeling up against the walls until he finds a door. 
and he opens the door, and it's kind of this dramatic climax of the movie. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm ruining it for you. <laughs> I've been accused of doing that. Um, he, uh, he opens the door, and it's a whole new world, right? And he walks through, and it is the real world, the world as it really is. And the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying as bright and as shiny as this world is and it appears, don't you realize it's artifice? Don't you realize it's the world pulled over your eyes to get you to buy into the system? And I feel like I'm really preaching to myself here, you know? Because I'm so easily seduced. You know what does it for me? You're going to think it's kind of uh, ridiculous, but you know what really gets me is uh, furniture catalogs. <laughs> when I look at a Pottery Barn catalog, I don't know what it is about just the clean, bright furniture, you know, just the beautiful setting, and everyone's so happy, and there's this guy sitting on this nice, plush couch, and he's reading the newspaper, he has his legs up, and there's this beautiful library behind them, and, you know, and it's so evocative of a life, you know, and it's so seductive, and it makes me want a conventional life, you know, it makes me want a life of ease and comfort, and I just want to go with the flow, but the Apostle Paul is telling us, don't you realize that this world in its present form is passing away? And so what that means then is that marriage, as good and as beautiful as it is, is in some ways a commitment to this life and not to the kingdom of God. Now, I know what I just said there uh, is open to misinterpretation, okay? So I want to be as precise, I want to be as, as nuanced as I can be. Paul is not saying that marriage is worldly and, and something that's carnal. Again, remember that Paul affirms the goodness of marriage. Marriage is from God. But there is such a way to be married that you're really just living for this world. Right? That you're just really staying on the island. And so what Paul is saying to, the, to us, even to those who are married, is he's saying, don't be married for this life. You know, don't, don't be wedded to this world, but live for the real world, the kingdom of God. And if you do that, for some of you, that means you'll be single. That means you'll be a celibate single. Because singleness is puncturing a hole in the walls of this pitiless world and into the world, the real world, on the other side. You see, what Paul is telling us is he's, and he's saying this to all of us, married and single. He's saying, make your life count. Make it mean something. Because the king of the universe is coming back. And so therefore, live for the king. Live for his kingdom and his glory. And so Paul is calling us to a radical life of passionate service to God. Now, I'm not talking about full-time ministry. You know, a lot of people think when I say something like that, they're saying, oh, I need to be a full-time pastor or missionary. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is immerse yourself. Live for God's kingdom. Live for him in your careers, in your jobs, in your schools. 
You know, engage the poor. Get involved in the lives of your neighbors and your coworkers and be strategic with your time and your, and your energy. Don't just dissipate and just self-indulge and live for yourself. So that's the first reason. And the second reason, which is really the other side of the same coin, Paul says, it is good to be single because, in verse 32, he writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. Now, once again, on the surface, it sounds like Paul is denigrating marriage, right? He's saying uh, marriage is full of anxieties. But he's actually using that word in a very positive sense. And we know that because all you have to do is read on in verse 32. He says, the unmarried man is anxious for the things of the Lord. And that's a good thing, right? He's talking about a good anxiousness, an anxiousness for the Lord. And so here's the argument Paul is making. He's making a very simple observation. See if you disagree. Marriage and family are time-consuming. Okay? Marriage and family are time-consuming. And actually, Paul is showing the high regard he has for marriage because he's saying you can't just neglect your family to do kingdom work. Right? It is good to tend to your marriage. It, it is pleasing to God. But, practically speaking, it means you can't be in two places at the same time. It means that you have limitations. It means, as he says in verse 34, your interests are divided. And to kind of appreciate where Paul is coming from, think about his life. Paul was a frontier missionary. He was constantly in danger. He was constantly being arrested and thrown in prison and tortured. You know, his entire life was full of hardship and suffering. Now imagine he had a wife and kids. Imagine the enormous pain they would go through. Not only that, but imagine the terrible anxiety he would have for them. It would be totally irresponsible for Paul to risk his life like, like that, even for the kingdom, if he has such a family. And so the argument that Paul is making, very simple, is he's saying, listen, both marriage and singleness are good, but each of them have trade-offs. And so that if you are married, the benefit is, you have companionship, you know? You have the support of your spouse, but you are limited. You know, if it wasn't for Christina and particularly Judah, I could do so much more, you know? <laughs> I know that may sound bad. You know, I, listen, I thank God every single day that I'm married, you know, because I, frankly, I need it. You know, I need the support. I need the companionship. So God knew that. So he said, Michael, you're getting married. But listen, if it were not for family, I could be so much more engaged, you know? I could put so much more time, you know, planning things. I could go out there talking with people, be all, like, radical. I could, I could spend more time preparing for this sermon. But I can't because I have a God-given responsibility to my family. And for those of you who are single... Okay, you have incredible flexibility. At a moment's notice, you could drop everything and go to another country. You could become a missionary on the frontier, you know? You have enormous time and energy and resources to pour into the kingdom of God, you know? And that's why this church, you know, the only way we can operate in the way that we do is because of the enormous volunteerism of, of the singles in this church. And so I, I praise God for the singles here, you know? Because they're like the labor force of this church. <laughs> 
But the limitation is this, the trade-off is this, that uh, there is a kind of loneliness. Now, singleness doesn't mean that you're alone. Okay? You should be surrounded by Christian community. You know, That's what Jesus had in his disciples. That's what Paul had with Titus and Timothy. But nevertheless, when you are single, there is a kind of loneliness. And that is why the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of it in another, in another verse a little earlier on before our passage. He speaks of it as a gift. And he actually sets up pretty stringent standards for meeting that gift in verse 37. He says, I mean, listen to it. He says, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, meaning to stay unmarried, he will do well. What? These are exacting standards, right? But you see, the whole argument only makes sense if you understand Paul's larger point, which is the point of life is not to maximize pleasure and to have as much fun as you can possibly have. That's what the world tells us, right? The world, I mean, our entire economy is based on that. The malls and all the advertisements is drilling into our heads. If only you buy and purchase enough stuff, then you'll be happy. But but Paul is telling us, no, your life should be a living sacrifice for God. Expend your life for him, for his kingdom, for his glory. You know why? Because Jesus expended his life you. On the cross, he became a sacrifice for you, to rescue you, to love you, to give you new life. And therefore, the reasonable response to the gospel is that we live for him. You know, this is not advanced Christianity. This is not, you know, only for elite Christians, as if there is such a thing. This is your reasonable response. If you believe the gospel, you will live for him. And for some of you, that means giving up your income, some of your income. For some of you, that means giving up some of your time. For some of you, it means giving up your reputation at work and at school, where you purposely put yourself in potentially embarrassing, maybe even awkward situations because the gospel compels you to. You know what I'm talking about, right? And for some of you, it means giving up the comforts and earthly blessings of marriage. Now you're saying, uh, wow, that's heavy. <laughs> you know, how do I know I have this gift? Lifelong celibacy. I don't even want that gift, you know? And it's true. It is only for some. You know, most of you are called to be married. But don't think about singleness only in terms of this lifelong calling. But know that God has called all of us to be single for a time. For a time. And so for those of you who are single, God has called you to that singleness today. Today. It doesn't mean that things won't change. It doesn't mean even that it's wrong to want things to change. But the question before you today is how will you use your singleness? What will you do with your singleness? And and the Apostle Paul is pleading with us in our passage to not squander the precious hours given to you to pour yourself out for him, to know him, and to love him, to immerse yourself in the church, in your community, engage the poor, live intentional lives of purpose and meaning. That's the point. And 
The other thing that singleness asks of us, and here I'm going to close with this. You know, singleness can be hard. And so God is asking of us, can you be content? Can you accept the life God has given you? Can you believe that your single status is God's good gift to you? That he has withheld nothing good from you? That your singleness is God loving you and watching over you and caring for you? Because you see, contented Christian singleness, you know, that is a rare thing. Contented Christian singleness is a proclamation that Christ alone is enough. That what makes us ultimately happy is not marriage, it's not family, it's not romance, it's not sex, it is Christ alone. That this is eternal life, to know God in Christ through the gospel. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we think about the fact that we live on the edge of eternity. And how foolish of us to think that the shiny baubles of this world will last forever. Lord, make us into radical, crazy, sold-out people who love you and therefore pour ourselves out for your kingdom work. Make us useful vessels for your glory. And we pray that we would not do this by our own strength, you know, by our own willpower but that we are compelled by the gospel, that the Holy Spirit uh, would transform our hearts and our lives and our wills, and we would realize the artifice of this life and the real world, which is the kingdom of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.